Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Report. With us today is Daniel McAdams, our co-host. Daniel, welcome to the program. Good morning, Dr. Paul. How are you this Monday? New week. Yes, ready sir. to go. That's and right. fortunately, we have a special guest to start off the week. Absolutely. And that is good. And he's calling long distance. I think he's <laughs> calling in from Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. I think that's across the pond somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know exactly where there was. Even though I've been in the service and uh, traveled a lot in the Air Force. For some reason, they never had me land in Amsterdam. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we have a special guest that I'm impressed with his resume. The first is, he sounds like he is devoted to the cause of liberty and that excites us. And the second thing is, is I don't know enough about Europe. And like I said, I've never been to Amsterdam and uh, to the Netherlands. So it's great to hear that there's some, there's life for liberty in, in Amsterdam. So I want to introduce our special guest who is a writer in politics, written some books here. Let me just put this up briefly so the viewers can see this and we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, his name is Siri uh, Baudet and uh, he's, uh, he's in their parliament right now and uh, we're delighted to have him with us. Uh, but we do know that uh, there's much that we're going to agree on and we love to see the message of liberty spread, not only in the United States, but we definitely need it spread around the world or we'll all suffer. So I want to go ahead and introduce Siri and uh, ask him to say hello to our audience. Siri, welcome to our program. Thank you very much. And Ron, it's such an honor to be on your show. You've been a, a hero of mine for <laughs> so many years and to be able to speak with you today is just awful. It's great. It's awesome. Right? It's great. <laughs> Daniel? Well, it's great to have you, Terry. Thank you so much for joining us. And you, uh, you were kind enough to send us a copy of your recent book, The COVID Conspiracy, which Dr. Paul held up. Uh, I heard it sold a couple copies over in the uh, Netherlands. That's good to hear. Uh, but now it's over here in the U.S. And uh, I like this kind of cross-partisan because your, uh, your preface is by Steve Bannon, who's on the right. And then you have a nice little uh, quote from RFK Jr. about the book on the back. So, uh, you know, it's uh, beyond left and right is what we're all about. But, um, you know, a lot of our yeah, viewers... I was just thinking, with, with some luck, uh, my book uh, has the recommendations of, of both the presidential candidates on the Democratic side <laughs> and one of the, the key strategists on the Republican side. It seems like he understands a little bit about yeah, politics. About Siri, what, what I want to start off with is I'm always interested in people who uh, find the message of liberty fascinating and we get excited about it and people have different uh, reasons for reaching that point. Tell us a little bit uh, in a brief way how you came to the point where you are right now uh, in the understanding and the desire to spread that message. Yes, well thank you very much indeed for that opportunity. So I was the only elected politician in uh, the Western world to have opposed every element of the COVID uh, lockdowns, the uh, semi-forced vaccinations, the social distancing, all of it. And um, during that period, which started in 2020, and that's what the book is about, how I experienced it, I experienced the real workings of power, uh, 
of what you may call the deep state. So I, I was very much part of the mainstream conservative establishment. And I noticed that most of the people that I was working with were very willing to sacrifice individual liberties uh, of, of citizens in order to, to be, remain part of the club, as it were. And I was standing there on that, on that precipice, on that point where I had to choose. And I chose to defend the liberties that were being taken from us on, on an unprecedented scale. And, uh, and that's what the book is about, because the, 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 the thing that followed from it was that I was being expelled from all the centers of power. I was being demonized. I was being marginalized. And that is how difficult it is. That's, that's why the story tells about much more than just the, the, all the, uh, the scam elements of COVID, the untruths. It also tells a little bit about how power seems to seduce so many people into suppressing citizens and just joining the club. And I never wanted to do that. I paid the price for it but I also wrote about it so other people can learn from it. You know, Thierry, a few years ago, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, an old friend of mine, was not a common name in the United States. Um, he has since become very, very well known, especially on the American right, for lack of a better word. Um, I do get the feeling that you are about to break here in the U.S., and that's why we're excited to have you on the program, just a prediction, um, because you, you defy these traditional left-right stereotypes which we can't stand. But I really would, I, 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 the book is a great book. It's a, it's a quick read. You won't want to put it down. But for the benefit of our viewers who aren't super familiar with yourself or with the book, maybe if you wouldn't mind just giving us a, a quick rundown of yourself, how, what brought you to write the book and what the book is about. Yeah, so I'm, I'm 40 years old. I, I've, I'm married. I live in Amsterdam. I'm we just have a, a, a small son whose name is Lancelot, and he's 11 months years old. And um, I'm recording this from my Amsterdam home. You can see the street here a little bit. Um, and um, I, I grew up as a, uh, a, a legal uh, scholar. I did a PhD in political philosophy with the late British philosopher Roger Scruton. And um, then I started writing for newspapers. I became a, a television uh, a commentator. But uh, gradually, I felt myself becoming more and more at odds with the establishment, with the mainstream establishment. I've uh, published a, a number of books, also uh, romance novels. But I felt that we needed to do more. So I started to start. I founded a, uh, an action group, which is called the Forum for Democracy. I founded it in 2014, which was just about the period when the British people were talking about Brexit. And I've been a, um, a, an opponent of the European Union uh, and a defender of sovereignty uh, for all my life. So I felt we needed to start to set up a group here in the Netherlands that was going to fight for a referendum, a Brexit-style referendum in the Netherlands. and. Um, I gathered a lot of signatures and I, I started organizing events and debates. So this was all back in 2014, 2015. And the government at some point said, okay, we're going to make a law that will make it possible to, to get an actual referendum if you get a real great amount of signatures. It was 300,000 signatures. And if you get that number, then, then we're going to help you give a... You know, organized a referendum. So it was, in principle, it was already a great success, which I achieved 
back in 2015. Mm. And then immediately I started with a couple of friends to um, to try to get as uh, as many signatures as, as we required. And I was one of the people, and we, we succeeded. So I was one of the people that was in the lead of the referendum that the Netherlands held. Not a lot of people uh, remember that anymore, but in 2016, right a couple months before the Brexit referendum, the Dutch had a referendum on the extension of EU membership to Ukraine, <laughs> which was a topic which you know, obviously became very, very important later. And we won that referendum. I was one of the people in the leading in the camp of no, no extension, no further extension of the EU. It will make the, the continent ever uh, less free, you know, more bureaucracy, less easy to govern, less, less democratic uh, transparency. And so um, we won the referendum by almost two-thirds majority. But the Dutch government ignored it. And uh, Prime Minister Rutte uh, is very, very astonishing. Uh, and he said, look, uh, you know, I've taken the advice of the Dutch audience and the Dutch public, but I'm not going to listen to this. So I felt this was, a, now it was personal. I I, this was something that I, I couldn't... <laughs> I couldn't accept. So I, I decided either I'm going to leave the country, I'm going to do something else entirely, I'm going to start a business, become a farmer, you name it, <laughs> or I'm going to cross the Rubicon, as it were. And that's what I did. So in the summer of 2016, I founded my own political party, which is also called Forum for Democracy. And in 2017, at the general elections, I got elected. So I became a member of parliament. I am the I'm the leader still of, of, of the Forum for Democracy. My party is the largest party in the country, in the Netherlands, in terms of members. So we have the largest membership uh, figure oh. and we organize events all the time. And we're very different from every other political party because I also uh, I'm very involved with society. So we have set up a school, an elementary school. Because in the Netherlands, and I'm sure the same is true in the United States, young children, and I, I feel this very urgently because I have a son myself, but young children are indoctrinated with this wokest agenda. And they are being promoted to accept uh, transgenderism, and they have to be, you know, vegetarian days, and climate <laughs> aware, and all right. that thing. I, I do not want that for my kids, and, and a lot of people in the Netherlands don't want that for their kids. So we've had a, a tremendous success setting up our own school. I've set up a publishing house. I've now set up a, a business, a small business, that supports the farmers, because the farmers in the Netherlands are under terrible pressure. And we take the food directly from the Dutch farmers, put it in boxes, and send it to consumers in the Netherlands that wow. wish to support directly, support wow. the farmers. So I'm, I'm just, I'm doing more than just parliamentary stuff, and, and I write obviously, but I also I think it's really, really important to have this societal network, this, this, this little platoon, as it were, that we're building up. Yeah, you know, I think what you have. Uh, done a good job in proving that one person can make a difference and it's a great story. Uh, we're, as most of the world knows that we are in the middle of an election and it'll be a big election next year 
and there's a lot of politicking going on. And the, the way I see it, uh, from my, my, our viewpoint here, is, you know, COVID is still an important issue, and I know you had a strong opinion about that. Ukraine is an ongoing special issue, issue and there's a shifting of attitudes here in this country. And also, the big issue, I think, politically, and it's in my, this is my opinion, that probably immigration is going to remain one of the top issues that the people are dealing with, and it stirs, stirs up a lot of emotion and a lot of unhappiness. And I, I'm sure you have an opinion on that, and I want to see, see if I can get out of there and look at this immigration problem, uh, first in a theoretical reason why maybe countries uh, have a right, uh, you know, to have uh, rules and regulations about entry into a country, and why for practical reasons this is very necessary. Yeah, so um, the Netherlands obviously uh, being part of the terrible EU uh, doesn't have the right to protect its own borders anymore. And, and if you, you don't protect your own borders, you're fundamentally not a country. We, we've seen the influx in the Netherlands of hundreds of thousands of migrants every year. And we're talking about the Netherlands is a country of currently about 17 and a half million inhabitants. So these are serious percentages and it adds up because every year new immigrants come in and um, they, uh, they seriously put pressure on the social fabric of our society. And the, the uh, sinister thing about it is, and that's perhaps also where the, uh, the COVID uh, story blends in with the climate change story blends in with supranationalism and blends in with migration. All these issues, they, they are part of the same megatrend, as it were, where we as, as peoples forming organic communities with one another are being played out against each other by having these incredible numbers of immigration, which no society could possibly sustain. And then having rulers, mostly supranational rulers, international rulers, that step in and say, look, we're going to fix this for you. You just raise the taxes, just just have more and more police control, have, have more and more um, uh, gated communities and people not, not living open lives with one another. You get low trust societies and the government, the officials, the, the ruling class, as it were, profits from that because from all that insecurity and all those all those societal issues uh, comes a, a mega state a, a corporate class a managerial class as james burnham would, would put it that will that will regulate our lives up to the tiniest detail and that's the demonic element in it so it, it's not just something that hey look we need to limit this because otherwise we're going to have too much crime we're going to ruin our businesses and so on it's also something that the government takes advantage of. Daniel, <clears throat> Daniel has a question. Yeah, Thierry, uh, if we can, uh, let's, let's go back to March 2020. Uh, and for me, personally, I would say that's where the world as I knew it ended, and it has not come back. Uh, and I think I, you know what I'm talking about. How did they do it? You mean March 2020? March 2020, 2020 yes. How were they yeah, able sure. to shut the entire world down 
and change everything yeah. that we know. Yes, well, indeed. And, and the funny thing, the interesting thing about that date is that it was, uh, these policies were implemented in all our several countries. So it was, it was definitely a coordinated thing. It was not, we had all these national press conferences and these national uh, parliamentary debates, but ultimately the, 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 call, the, the shots were called at, at, a, at a different level. And they all and said the same thing. They all said the same thing, exact same literally thing. Literally the same thing. And they all had the, um, the, the translator for the deaf at yeah. these press conferences. That was also a new thing because it helped to give people the impression that a, a national emergency was at hand. It was all, they played on our fears in such a, uh, an, an immoral way. It's incredible. So you, you asked the question, how did they do it? And I think the, the most important thing for people like us to understand about how the, how the machinations of power are, how, how these things are actually working, is scenario planning. So what they're doing is they've got all these scenarios that they are thinking out. Like, for example, a pandemic scenario. There have been about 10 uh, consecutive repetitions of what the world would do, you know, when a pandemic would hit in the case of a, of a, of a pandemic. And all these government officials and big corporations and journalists, they're all they were all present at these simulations. And what happens is that across the, the board, you get elites, you get, you get people in, in positions of power who have already a, a sort of a general sense of what am I going to do in case A happens or in case B happens. They've got all these scenarios already in their head big financial crisis, an alien attack, you know, you name it, whatever, whatever they are, uh, whatever scenario, hack attack, the, the, the breakdown of the internet. What if Russia attacks Ukraine? How are we going to respond? And, and almost without realizing it, almost without knowing it, national elites are groomed in that way. Mm by the international nomenclatura, by the international deep state, the global deep state. And they are primed to respond in the right way. You know, and this, the, the, this the whole... Funny, I've, I've sometimes said, the funny thing is, you don't even have to bribe them right. for them to do exactly what you want them to do. This issue of borders and immigration is huge, I think, throughout the world, certainly huge in this country as well. But if you compare this to the other problems that I mentioned, you know, we have the, uh, the pharmaceutical problems, the COVID, uh, we have Ukraine, we have general economic problems, inflation, and it affects it. How do you place this whole idea about borders and immigration? Is, is, that, is that a number one issue? How big is that? Or is that just going to be one of three things that people are going to be talking about? Where do you place that issue? I think it's one of several issues. I think the left is going to talk a lot about climate change and environmental issues in the coming uh, years. I think the right is going to address the issue of immigration, but obviously is not going to dare to talk about the, the, the real taboos, the real, the real issues that are underlying 
the immigration discussion because the, the right is too afraid to do that. Um, I think uh, CBDC is a massive thing, the protection of our, uh, the soundness of our money. I think that is something that is being overlooked largely by freedom-loving people. But we have to talk about how our wealth is being stolen from us through inflation. I think that's a major issue. And then uh, I think geopolitically, uh, you were saying there was a shift in, in the uh, approach of the Americans uh, towards the conflict in Ukraine. And I think that's about time. And I think the multipolar world order is upon us. And we need to uh, we need to really start thinking seriously about what that means for almost every element of our lives. Right. Well, one of the things we're seeing here just on, on Ukraine for a second is the uh, a lot of the U.S. neocons who push this from the beginning. And this is what they do every time, Thierry, and I know you know this from Iraq to Syria and et cetera. If you had only listened to us and gone in harder at first, we wouldn't be having this discussion. <laughs> so in a way, it smacks of desperation in a way because it sounds like they know they've lost. Uh, but I, I want to take you to a piece, and I'm sure you read it, but it came out yesterday in Politico Europe, and I just happened upon it, uh, and I thought it was absolutely hilarious. It's called Springtime for Europe's fascists. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a fascinating article on, on many levels. First of all, I think because they recognize the danger of what's happening in Europe and they're trying to contain it. And it talks about the AFD at 20% at Rassemblement National, uh, 1% point below uh, being the number one party FPO in Austria, your party as well. I think they're trying to ban your party from the Netherlands, which I guess what they may not, what they may do in Germany next. but. What is most fascinating, and maybe you can comment on this, is what, what does it say about the parties in power in Europe that are supporting literal fascists in Ukraine that they have to condemn those of you, the, your parties that are against this support, they have to condemn you as fascists? It seems almost like an exercise in gaslighting. Yes, but there's more to it. It's actually it's very interesting and important to understand that the our understanding, the, the mainstream understanding of the world has been shaped dramatically by the Frankfurt School, which was a school of thinkers uh, that started, originated in Germany in the 1920s, 1930s. It relocated to the U.S. And, the, and these thinkers believed that actual fascism and Nazism and the and, and, and Second World War essentially were uh, an inevitable outcome, an inevitable consequence of traditional family life, traditional patriarchy, traditional European culture. And and, and the, the thinkers of this movement, of the Frankfurt School, were incredibly influential in shaping, for example, the denazification program that America implemented in Europe after the Second World War. They were instrumental in setting up uh, political science faculties around the world. They were, they were, they've shaped our cultural life, they've shaped our journalistic life, our understanding of psychology, and, and the destruction that, we, that we've been seeing ever since of European civilization, European aesthetics through modern architecture, the European, the makeup of our societies, the ethnic and social makeup of our societies through mass immigration, sovereignty, being proud of your national history, 
the traditional family, the destruction of the traditional family through wokeism and LGBTQI+, all that comes ultimately from the philosophy of the Frankfurt School thinkers who believed that traditional European life was ultimately going to lead to another world war, mass extinction of other peoples, uh, the conquest of land, all these all these horrible things associated with the Second World War. And that is why the Ukraine is doing so much in trying to show off as being progressive. That's why they have an LGBT regiment in their <laughs> army. You can look this up. You can look this up. You can check this. They have an actual LGBT regiment in their army. I don't think they're going to have a lot of military <laughs> success, but it has a certain propaganda issue. It's important to present Ukraine as the the anti-fascist, the progressive, the the non-binary nation vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and, and, and Putin, which is increasingly positioning itself as a defender of traditional Europe. I don't know whether this so, new policy with the military will be helpful or not. It might, it might lead to more peace. There won't be anybody know how to fight a war or something. But I wanted to touch. I want to touch on the economic policy. You briefly mentioned it, and even the problem that people face with inflation. But uh, you know, if I, I sit, try to simplify this, you know, you could break economic policy down to, you know, what we uh, claim in this country. They've been uh, the economists and most members of Congress have been taught uh, Keynesian economic or central economic planning by noble bureaucrats who know what's best for everybody. And then you have the outright socialists. We have those. But uh, then there's the other group. I was just wondering whether. There's groups over uh, in Europe that you know, or in the Netherlands, which identify themselves as, as uh, you know, uh, Austrian economists, believing, you mentioned, I think, sound money. Uh, is there a group like that? Uh, do you see it ever in the literature? Do they talk about gold being uh, used again in the monetary system? Because some of the oil people are starting to trade in oil rather, rather than gold. Uh, what do you what do you hear about uh, that uh, school of thought in economics? As far as I know, uh, my party is the only party in Europe which is explicitly Austrian in its uh, economic uh, outlook. We are with 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 my publishing house. We're also publishing a, a book about uh, the Austrian school, and we're organizing classes where people get. Uh, educated in Volnices and, and others. So I think that's extremely important. And I've been a defender of the gold standard for a long time until I discovered Bitcoin, which I think has the potential of uh, rivaling gold. And uh, I discovered, Ron, that we both um, feel very uh, strongly for a man who was imprisoned in the US for popularizing Bitcoin, whose name is Ross Ulbricht. And I think it's very, very important that we continue to defend his cause as well and call for a presidential pardon for him because he absolutely deserves that. Yeah. Right. Daniel? We're getting uh, close to wire cutoff time, <clears throat> but I want to ask you one last question, Thierry, if you will indulge me. And that's sort of a general question. We see now that the narrative is broken down on Ukraine. We see it every day when even the U.S. mainstream media is admitting that all of these, <laughs> all of these things they had been telling us along that. This, this last year or so was a lie, same with COVID. 
Where do you see this going? How is it going to unravel? What's it going to look like from your perspective? Well, uh, the most likely is probably that it will be a frozen conflict. I don't see any way in which uh, Russia is going to lose this war. But the question is, is NATO uh, going to accept defeat or is there going to be some kind of stalemate and then uh, perhaps it will take another five or ten years? I think ultimately the, the battlefield of Ukraine is the, uh, is the battlefield for uh, or against uh, American hegemony. And uh, the sad thing is that although I feel very, very deeply connected with the American people, and I think the American Republic is a wonderful thing, I think the American empire has largely worked against the interests of the American citizens, uh, as well as the, the citizens of the West as a whole. Uh, and um, I, I think the, this war was entirely unnecessary um, Russia has been provoked into it, it never wanted it to happen, and it's still calling for peace um, talks uh, on a weekly basis. So it also depends, I think, uh, who wins the presidency. If Biden or, the, or any other deep state candidate somehow manages to secure another four-year term, then it's unlikely that America is going to back down, because we know the hawks and the industrial military industrial complex are so deeply involved in the current White House. But if either Pres President Trump returns or uh, RFK Jr. comes into the White House, then we might very well see a dramatic shift uh, in, in the mood. And if peace talks recommends, and if America and Europe find a way to reconcile with Russia and see how our common interests, and, and, and we're, we're together, then I think we might have a very bright future. So it's, I think a lot depends on what happens next year in the United States elections, actually. Very good. We will have to close down, but I do want to remind our audience uh, that uh, I think this type of a program is so important because it's a, it's a small world when it comes to the type of weaponry is around and how there's so many international organizations. And guess who gets, it's my opinion, it gets squeezed out, and that is the individual. That is why, uh, Syria, I think this is delightful for us to uh, have you with us today and talk about, you know, some very positive things that are, are happening. But if they want to follow what you're doing, do you have a, uh, the Forum uh, for Democracy? Does that have a website that uh, some of our viewers could uh, tune into? Absolutely. So we have uh, fvdinternational.com. That's fvdinternational.com. I can be found on Twitter. It's Thierry Baudet at uh, it's, it's at Thierry Baudet. And of course, uh, if people are interested, they can order my book at AmsterdamBooks.com or on Amazon or on Kindle. Wonderful. And I, I want to thank all our viewers today for uh, tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed the program as much as I have. And please return to the Liberty Report soon.